If you have a business, you need a website. What's the best way to get a website up and running? Choose a website hosting company that makes it simple, like Pair Networks. Pair has over 20 years of experience managing the entire digital ecosystem for thousands of online businesses all around the world. Pair makes it easy for you with do-it-yourself website building tools and features, including simple drag and drop page design. And they have guaranteed US-based support technicians ready to help you whenever you need it, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Right now, when you sign up with Pair Networks, you'll receive one free month of web hosting. See for yourself how easy it is to build your website for free. Visit pair.com slash free to get your first month of website hosting for free by using the code QUICKSTART. That's pair.com, P-A-I-R slash free promo code Q-U-I-C-K-S-T-A-R-T to get started today. We are, we are, we are Cultivate. 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 We are Cultivate. The Oracle Network. Hello and welcome to Yield Crime, where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. I'm your host, Lindsay Valenti, and with me is my sister and co-host, Maddie Stangle. Hello. Hi. How's it going? It's going. Happy New Year, for real this time, for us. (laughs) Yep. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Anyway, fun news. Uh, I forgot to mention it on our first episode because it wasn't really kind of finalized, but it was finalized. So now I can because it's it's officially official, official. (laughs) So we are now members of the Cultivate Network. Yay! We are still part of the Oracle Network, but now we are also part of this fledgling network with other great shows such as Reddit on Wiki, Let's Start a Cult, Mm -hmm. Shots and Thoughts, The Dumbfound Dead, Pineapple Pizza, (laughs) and Weird Distractions. We're very excited for that. I yeah. think it's going to be, it's a really fun group of people and they've got a lot of big plans as far as how they want to see the group grow. So I think okay. that'll be a great fit for us in 2022. So nice. more on that as it comes, but we're official, baby. We did it. Yay. Looks like we made it. All right. Continuing with the month's theme of Joyful January. Yay! I like this. Let's do this always. <laughs> no more long pigs, please. <laughs> it's, a, it's a big ask, but... I can't promise that. I know. I already know there's some coming later this year. No. Sorry about it. But that's to be tabled for another conversation. Right now we're in Joyful January. And today, I'm going to be regaling you with the tale of the Bone Wars. Bone Wars. Mm-hmm. And if it's joyful, is it, it can't be the other kind of bone, actual bones. It's actual bones. Okay. It's not boners. 
It's not the boner wars. I, I just mean, didn't, I didn't know what where we were taking it. New year, new podcast. I didn't know. Just thought I'd. Uh. No lightsaber battles here. Okay. But well, you could with bones. You could. Bone battle. So this week, the information was pulled from the following sources. A 2020 Thought Co. article by Bob Strauss. A 2019 Interesting Engineering article by Marsha Wendorf. 2017 Vintage News article by Boban Dosevsky. 2014 Mental Floss article by Keith Plosek. 2013 Slate article by Daniel Engber. PBS American Experience article. And three articles on the Wikipedias. Ooh, Wikipedia came in hot. Coming in hot. Nice. And links to all these articles will be included in the show notes. So, Maddie. Yes, Lindsay. When you think of dinosaurs, some of the most popular species that may come to mind, correct me if I'm wrong, Mm -hmm. are the Triceratops. Yep. The Stegosaurus. Yep. And the Allosaurus. It's like a T-Rex. Yeah. All right. I know. Now, I can't get over the fact that, like, the they found a preserved one that's essentially a bird. Yeah. It's really bumming me out. I mean, I knew birds looked like dinosaurs, but, like, birds are dinosaurs. <laughs> I know. That's why I'm afraid of chickens. But that's another story for another time. <laughs> so what if I told you that the subjects of today's episode discovered these and 133 other species of dinosaurs in a few that would do wonders for the field of paleontology. Is it like a neighbor war where like people just found a bunch of bones in their backyard and they're like, oh, I'm going to be famous first. <laughs> no, but it is uh, kind of turfy. It's very turfy. Man, people in ground. It's a big deal. So let's dig into it. (laughs) I do tell. (laughs) So following the end of the Civil War, the field of American paleontology was in its infancy in the American West. The term itself wasn't coined until 1822. Interesting. Yeah, right? I thought it would have been like much sooner than that. But yeah, I mean, I guess we had bigger things to deal with at the time. But yeah, you know, like. Civil War, but and you know, a pandemic prior to that, and just lots of other wars. Yeah, <laughs> prior to that, all just the wars, no, all the pandemics, nothing but wars and emics and death, panoramics. Enter Othniel Charles Marsh and Edward Drinker Cope. <laughs> they sound like puppets. <laughs> oh man, no, I want them to be puppets. <laughs> They sound, they sound like puppet names on like Sesame Street. And they're like, we're here to teach about dinosaurs. Oh my God. I want somebody to make puppets of them now. <laughs> Someone do that. All right. Othniel Charles Marsh was born in Lockport, New York on October 29th, 1831 to parents Caleb and Mary Gaines Peabody. His father was a farmer and his mother, who was the younger sister of banker and philanthropist George Peabody, died when Othniel was three from a bout of cholera. Yeah. Thanks to his uncle George, Othniel was able to escape farm life and received a formal education. He graduated from Phillips Academy in Andover in 1856 before attending Yale College. Ooh. Yeah. 
where he graduated with honors with a Bachelor's of Arts degree in 1860. LOL. You had me until he said Bachelor of Arts. <laughs> I know that doesn't mean anything because I have one. <laughs> I know. I do too. Just kidding. It means something. But like, you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> Othniel went on to receive a Berkeley scholarship from Yale. So he furthered his studies at Yale's Sheffield Scientific School in the fields of geology, mineralogy, and chemistry, earning his master's in 1863 at the age of 32. Nice. Yeah. Now I just imagine him in a really fancy apartment close to Yale, like surrounded by rocks. Mm-hmm. Nice, nicely tumbled rocks. The softest of the rocks. Just the shiniest and sparkliest. Roundest rocks. <laughs> There's like geodes everywhere. Oh, man. Like a geode bathtub. He had a geode bathtub. Oh, man. It'd be pokey. <laughs> Good for exfoliation. <laughs> yes. Following this, Othniel decided he wanted to learn even more. So he went overseas where he studied anatomy and paleontology in Berlin, Heidelberg, and Breslau between 1862 and 1865. Interesting two fields of study. Yeah. I want to study human bodies, but also bones in general. <laughs> mm-hmm. My favorite part about them anatomy is bones. I mean, it kind of makes sense if you're going to be reassembling bones. You kind of want to know how they all work together, right? I suppose. Yeah. In 1866, following his return stateside, he was hired at Yale University at the age of 35 as a professor of vertebrate paleontology, making him mm-hmm. the first professor of paleontology in the United States. Fancy. So fancy. That same year, thanks to a donation of $150,000. That would have been so much money then. Or $2.6 million today. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> from his Uncle George, the Peabody Museum of Natural History at Yale was founded, and Othniel oh. served as one of its trustees and original curators. Cool. Yeah. Thanks, Uncle George. Wow. Yeah, he like convinced his uncle to donate a bunch of money to form this history museum. This has to be remade in puppet form. It just has to. Please. I'm just now imagining Uncle George is a puppet. And he's just like, I just want to play with rocks, Uncle George. And he's like, okay. And then like just like makes it rain with all the money. Just a bunch of, here's a bunch of money. Is that enough monies? Do you need more monies? Thank you, Uncle George. He just starts swimming in dollar bills. Just puts a bunch of it. Scrooge McDuck's style. He has it in his top hat, which is super large, so it fits all the money. Mm -hmm. Edward Drinker Cope was born in Philadelphia on July 28, 1840, to parents Alfred and Hannah Cope. The family lived in a large stone house called Fairfield on eight acres of land in Pennsylvania. Fancy. Again. So fancy. Like Othniel, he also lost his mother when he was three years old. Oh. I know, right? Same, similar issue? It didn't say. Oh. But likely it was either illness or if she was attempting to have a child. I'm assuming illness. Yeah. Yeah. His father, Alfred, was a Quaker. Ooh. Henry married a woman named Rebecca Biddle. Edward later had a younger stepbrother named James Biddle Cope. That's a funny name. It is a funny name. Edward's parents were big on education, and from a young age, he was taught to read and write, not to mention the family traveled all over New England to visit zoos, gardens, and museums, 
When he was nine, Edward attended a day school in Philadelphia before attending the Friends Boarding School near Westchester, Pennsylvania in 1852 at the age of 12. Okay. The Friends School would have been like a Quaker-run school. Yeah, it sounds like it. Yep. It's right in their wheelhouse. Anytime Friends is in the name, chances are, at least back then, it was Quaker-run. But are they friendly? Because they're not generally. I don't know. It didn't say that in my notes. They were dicks. <laughs> is it? Is it like, hey, friend, friend school? Or it's like, hey, friend, friend school. We're friends or else. Yeah. While there, he studied a variety of subjects, including chemistry, algebra, grammar, astronomy, scripture, physiology, and Latin at oh, 12. Scripture. scripture was just kind of snuck in there. Yeah. Bit. He's like, look at all this scripture. And then, then yeah. this. <laughs> and he was only 12 when he, he learned was 12. all 12, yeah. Did he really absorb any of it? I don't know. You know? I mean, like, most 12-year-olds can, I guess, but, like... I mean, they didn't have a lot of the distractions that most 12-year-olds have today, so... What? I know, right? They don't have distractions. Edward spent two summers in 1854 and 1855 working on the farm. When he returned to school in 1855, he was a regular visitor of the Academy of Natural Sciences. While at school, Edward requested more spending money, even though at that time his father Alfred was already spending a fortune on tuition. Interesting. So tuition was $500 a year, which today would equal around $18,000. And he's like, I need more money, Dad. Yep. I want to go party with my Bones friends. Many of his teachers thought he was a bit of a spoiled brat. So that's hard to imagine. Right. Especially at a Quaker school. Yeah. Where being spoiled is being getting money at all. Mm-hmm. You have an extra dollar, you fiend. But I bet he also like maybe sucked. So uh, yeah. Who knows? We'll get into it. Hey friend. Hey friend. Following Christmas break in 1855. Edward wasn't allowed to return to school in 1856. What? Alfred decided he was going to turn his spoiled son into a proper farmer for a variety of reasons. <laughs> this is going to go great. Yep. yep. So he could earn an honest and comfortable living and to improve his health. Because I guess he mm. was generally pretty sickly. So he's like a computer nerd that's being taught to go outside and do stuff. Yeah. Kinda. Kinda. A man with no calluses. Yes. Bummer. His father's interest in turning his educational pursuits into agriculture failed miserably, which we yes, saw that coming. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Should have started a little sooner. Yeah. As Edward continued his education on his own while working for his father by working part time at the Academy of Natural Sciences, where he cataloged specimens. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, I can see why he would want to, like, sabotage the other job then. Yeah. That'd be way more fun. He published his first series of research on what he'd learned in January 1859 at the age of 18. Dang. Although originally adverse to his son pursuing a career in the sciences, because Quaker, Alfred yeah. eventually relented and paid for his son's education as he started learning French and German. Okay. Because at that time, most of the paleontologists were based in Europe. It wasn't something that, that was yet active yeah. in the U.S. 
Well, and I wonder too if that that was also like can like talk to them about being a Quaker. Maybe. In another language. Maybe. Get to know them. Getting Become to friends. Know you. Getting to know all about you. Be my friend, friend. Getting to like you. Getting to hope Don't. you like me. What if we get... That's it. I'm not doing any more than that. Hey, stop. Moving on. Edward rented the farmland that his father had purchased for him and used the income it generated to further his scientific education. Okay. Edward attended the University of Pennsylvania in 1861 and studied anatomy from Joseph Leedy, who was one of the most influential anatomists and paleontologists of the day. Nice. Edward also got a job cataloging the herpetological collection of the Academy of Natural Sciences. Interesting. Okay. So for people who don't know what herpetology is, it's basically like reptiles, like reptiles and amphibians and stuff like that. Slimy things that turn into rocks. Mm-hmm. In an effort to avoid the draft for the Civil War. That sounds like, that's that on par. Yep. Avoiding the draft for the yep. Civil War. Yep. Edward traveled to Europe. And while he was in Berlin in 1863, he met Othniel while he was studying natural history. Oh, who's also conveniently not in the United States during the Civil War. Yep. What? Othniel was attending the University of Berlin, and the two men seemed to take a liking to one another. They became friends! They became such good friends. The best of friends. Othniel took Edward on a tour of the city, and they even roomed together for a few days. Ooh. After Edward returned to the States in 1864, the pair stayed in touch, sharing letters, photographs, manuscripts, and even some fossils. That's so cute. It is like, I know cute. there's, I know there's spoiled brat dudes, but like sharing fossils, like that's really cute. <laughs> I found this bone and it made me think of you. <laughs> Give you a bone. I'm going to throw you this bone. <laughs> Both literally and figuratively. But like not actually throw it because we're. It's the male. We're, we're good people. Upon his return to Philadelphia in 1864. Edward utilized his family's Quaker connections to secure a teaching post as the professor of zoology at Haverford College, where he was awarded an honorary master's degree so he could assume the post. Because remember, he didn't finish school. Yeah, I just think it's funny that, like, how to use their Quaker connections. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Seems kind of silly. All that oats money. Yeah. (laughs) Brought to you by shame. (laughs) (laughs) That same year, he described his first paleontological contribution, Amphibimus graticeps, which was an ancestor of modern amphibians. Interesting. Mm-hmm. What did it look like? Is it kind of weird? I'll have to find a picture of it. Does it have like a glove on his head or anything? I hope it does. It's just like a Michael Jackson amphibian. It just like inflates whenever it's stressed out. <laughs> Get back, Jack. I'll slap you. <laughs> look at this frill. A year later, he married Annie Pym, who was also a Quaker, in July of 1865 at her family's farmhouse in Chester County, Pennsylvania. The following year, they welcomed their daughter, Julia Biddlecope, on June 10th, 1866. She would be the only child the pair would have. Oh, okay. And as far as I know, she didn't die young, so... That's surprising and good to know. Yep. That's the last you're ever going to hear of her. (laughs) Oh, she didn't die. 
The end. <laughs> but she still existed. Congratulations. It wouldn't be long before Edward and Othniel, who for all intents and purposes seemed to have formed a great friendship, would start duking it out in an effort to outclass the other in their field of study, paleontology. Ooh, who's smarter? In 1867, Edward discovered an amphibian fossil, Tionius marshi, that he named after Othniel. So that was kind of okay. nice because the, yeah. mar- the marshy part was for marsh. Mm-hmm. And the following year, Othniel returned the favor by naming a, quote, new and gigantic serpent from the tertiary of New Jersey, end quote, after Edward with the name Mosasaurus copianus. It looks like copianus. That's really funny. Everybody did that on purpose. <laughs> He's all about anatomy. He knew what he was doing. Copus anus. <laughs> Cope. But <laughs> coat butt. Now here is where things start to take a turn, and the Bone Wars, or the Cope Marsh rivalry, truly begins. Begin the Bone Wars. In 1868, the same year that Othniel named a new fossil discovery after Edward, Edward gave his friend a tour of a fossil quarry in Haddonfield, New Jersey, that 12 years earlier had produced a fossil of the Hadrosaurus folki which was discovered by William Parker Folk and named by Joseph Leedy. Okay. The mentor. Yeah. It was one of the first American dinosaurs to be discovered. Nice. Unbeknownst to Edward, Othniel made a deal with the quarry owner that any new fossils should be sent to him at Yale. Oh, snap. Edward learned of this huge breach in etiquette, not to mention of their tenuous friendship, and the war was on. Yeah, I bet that would do it. Like, maybe do, like, every other bone? Yeah. I don't know. Kind of a dick move. It was a huge dick move. 1868 was a big year for the pair, as Edward, who by this point had already published over 37 scientific papers, compared to the two that had been written by Othniel, (laughs) Nice. rushed to publish the discovery of a new species of plesiosaur that had been unearthed by an army surgeon in Kansas. Okay, that's pretty great. That is pretty great. It's just an army surgeon. He's like, you know, I should really start digging up all the arms in my backyard. (laughs) He's like, wait a minute, these are pretty big. This isn't a human arm. Naming it Elasmosaurus platyrus, which made me really happy because it sounds kind of like platypus. Yeah. Edward mistakenly reversed the vertebrae as he was reconstructing the animal, which meant he had accidentally put the skull at the end of the dinosaur's tail. (laughs) <laughs> idiot. Because if you look at it, and I'll Nerd. share pictures, it had like those really long necks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's an, it's an honest mistake, but yeah. Sorry, which one did it? Othniel? Edward did that. Edward did it. Ooh. The younger one. The younger okay. Quaker. Uh-oh. The blunder wasn't discovered until on a visit to the Academy of Natural Sciences when Othniel pointed out Edward's mistake. Oh, man, he really knows how to, like, ruin things. A mistake which was confirmed by their mentor, Joseph Leedy. Oh, (laughs) ouch. Edward, in an effort to cover up his embarrassment, quickly published a correction to his findings and even attempted to purchase every printed copy of the American Philosophical Society journal that included his original paper. That's so sad. However, the damage had been done, especially when Joseph exposed the error and cover-up attempt at the following meeting of the Academy of Natural Sciences. So the mentor did that? Yeah. 
You're really upset, Dad, man. Yeah. Dad's pissed. <laughs> Othniel later wrote of the incident, quote, When I informed Professor Cope of it, his wounded vanity received a shock from which it has never recovered, and he has since been my bitter enemy, end quote. No, I'm pretty sure, pretty, pretty sure that was like way before. Yeah, you know, when you were like stealing all of the bones at his quarry. Yeah. Yeah. Remember that? He couldn't make heads or tails of it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why we don't have sponsors. Right? We're so hilarious. So funny. Othniel received an inheritance of $100,000 or $1.8 million today upon his uncle's death in 1869. And he used that funding to uncover around 500 new species of fossil animals, which he named in around 400 scientific articles over the course of his career. Okay. As Edward and Othniel traveled west in search of new fossils, their rivalry intensified. Othniel spent his time attempting to recover as many fossils as possible before Edward could do the same. Okay. This seems very silly. Yep. He even employed a number of spies to track Edward's progress using the codename Jones in an attempt to hide who he was really observing. So he's Indiana Jones. Yeah. Got it. Many fossil discoveries were made almost on accident as excavation work was being done ahead of the expansion of the Transcontinental Railroad. That makes sense. Gotta dig pretty deep. Mm -hmm. And this was through the, the states of Nebraska, Wyoming, and Colorado. So at the start of the 1870s, the Great Dinosaur Rush had begun. I've never heard of this. This is really intriguing. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Edward rushed to publish his findings in academic journals in a practice that fellow paleontologist Bob Backer described as, quote, taxonomic carpet bombing, end quote. What? <laughs> which in layman's terms means to explosively classify and name things. So he's basically just like yeah. word vomiting names left, right, yeah. and center. Bluey number two. Bluey 568. So he can be Grass. like the person that named it. Right. In May of 1871, Othniel made a number of discoveries, including the first pterosaur fossils found in America, as well as a number of early horses and flying reptiles. Nice. He additionally discovered a number of Cretaceous and Jurassic dinosaurs that many of us will recognize, such as the Triceratops, Stegosaurus, Brontosaurus, Apatosaurus, Allosaurus. He named all these? Mm-hmm. Okay. Ichthyornis and Hesperornis. So the last two are flying dinosaurs that are kind of like the pterodactyl. You know who this man is? Hmm. Former Nick Cage. <laughs> Nick Cage in his previous life. Yeah, it's previous life, Nick Cage. Othniel's discovery of various horse fossils allowed him to produce evidence to support Darwin's theory of evolution. English biologist and anthropologist Thomas Henry Huxley visited Othniel in 1876. And even though his views on evolution were quite different from Darwin's, thanks to Othniel's fossil collection, he changed his mind and it became part of his famous New York lecture on the horse. Just a random fun fact for you. You know, my my famous horse lecture. (laughs) My world famous horse lecture. Huxley the horse man, that's what they call me. In June of 1872, 
Edward took a trip out west as part of the U.S. Geological Survey team under Ferdinand Hayden, and upon arriving at Fort Bridger, Wyoming, he discovered several new species. Interesting. By that point in time, Othniel preferred to pay students and other agents to prospect on his behalf. I kind of figured he was doing that like the entire time. He did travel to a certain extent. And then I think once he got his inheritance, he's like, I don't need to do this anymore. I can pay people to do this for me. Right. I'm not going to go dig in the dirt anymore. It wasn't long before Edward was going on expeditions on his own in an attempt to get all the glory himself, which understandably angered his fellow paleontologists. When Edward went to investigate reports of big bones near Black Butte's station, Ferdinand refused to pay for the expedition, which meant that Edward had to pay for the equipment himself. Because remember, he was part of a survey team. Yep. Not only that, but later he discovered that two of the members of his team were actually secretly working for Othniel. I mean... That checks out. Like yeah. he's Othniel seems like a the villainous villain with like a rich uncle. Mm-hmm. Y- you know, like it checks out. He seems like somebody that would like twiddle his mustache. He had and he had the top hattiest of top hats. He mm-hmm. was like super huge. Edward ended up bribing them to get them to work for him instead. And when Othniel learned of this, he was pretty pissed. <laughs> okay, but like pot kettle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> mm. <laughs> When some of Othniel's materials were sent to Edward by mistake, Edward returned them and mocked him mercilessly for it. So he could have just kept them, but he was like, no, I'm going to send them back. I'm going to make fun of the fact that I know what you're doing. So, Oh, okay. I was going to be like, got your mail. <laughs> like, <what? laughs> by 1873, the hostilities between the two were at a fever pitch. Since they weren't collaborating anymore, they would often publish the same findings and specimens, but call them different things. I bet the the scientific community was so annoyed with them. Oh, yeah. We get into it. It's like the billionaire war today. Mm-hmm. Space race. Space hashtag, race. Hashtag, hashtag space race. Who's going to go to Mars? So regardless of who published the findings first, the specimens would be classified under the names that Othniel came up with, since his naming conventions made more sense. That's a bummer. Yep. That's definitely a bummer. When Edward learned that Othniel had created a new mammal order for a new species he had discovered, Edward was angered because he couldn't rename any of the mammalian species he had already submitted because the classification, Cenocerea, had already been accepted. That sucks. Mm -hmm. That's a bummer. That same year, 1873, Othniel made his final Yale-sponsored expedition. He had been spending quite heavily, and he made the 13 students who came with him pay their own way. That is not not nice. No. Don't ever do that to students, please. Yeah. Students don't have money. They don't. At the conclusion of this trip, Yale paid... $1,857.50, which today would be $43,000, compared to the $15,000, or $342,000 today, that they'd spent in the past for his last expedition. This is a good decision, Yale? Yeah. After this trip, Othniel instead paid locals to dig and collect the samples for him and then ship them to him at Yale. This doesn't sound like a good path. No. It's like when you have people 
clean up and redo, restore paintings who don't know how to restore paintings. And then you get the weird smeary Jesus like <laughs> we did a few years ago. I love the weird smeary Jesus. <laughs> That's my favorite painting ever. <laughs> it's like tiny, tiny beady eyes. <sighs> this next part's really going to piss you off. Okay, great. In the mid-1870s, a number of fossils were being discovered in the Black Hills of South Dakota. South Dakota! <laughs> <laughs> that's, their, that's their whole thing. Mm-hmm. It's, just, it's just singing the name. Yep. And this was thanks in part to the gold rush. The whole territory was under the control of the Sioux Nation, led at that time by Chief Red Cloud. Okay. In order to dig, permission needed to be granted by Chief Red Cloud. Uh-huh. Othniel approached him and promised to pay him a large sum, as mm-hmm. well as lobby for better treatment of him and his people once he returned to the capital. Uh-huh. Othniel received permission to dig, but ended up running off with his findings after collecting enough fossils without paying as he promised. Shock. Mm-hmm. Wow. I read I that and I was like, you really are a dick. Yeah. In 1877, a Colorado school teacher named Arthur Lakes sent a letter to Othniel regarding some bones he discovered during a hiking trip in Morrison, Colorado. He had also sent samples to Edward, since Othniel had been taking his time responding. Interesting. In an effort to keep Arthur quiet about the find, since he was unaware that samples had also been sent to Edward, Othniel paid him $100, or $2,600 today, to not say a word about the discovery to anybody else. LOL. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Meanwhile, Edward had been told of another fossil site in Cannon City, Colorado, that held the bones of huge herbivores, which Othniel tried to get his hands on, but he failed. Villain's starting to slip a little bit, isn't he? At this point, it was just common knowledge that Othniel and Edward were competing for the newest and best fossils that could be found, and the public used that knowledge to their advantage. Yeah, get them both! An area known as Como Bluffs, Wyoming, came into play in 1877, when two workers for the Union Pacific Railroad contacted Othniel using pseudonyms about their fossil discovery while working to expand the rail line. The men, whose real names were William Harlow Reed and William Edwards Carlin, stated that they had no problems reaching out to Edward if Othniel couldn't agree to their rather generous terms. All right, ye old trolls. I can can get it. Othniel sent out one of his agents and paid the men handsomely before he soon was being delivered boxcars of fossils. Wow. Yeah. These included the first specimens of Allosaurus, Stegosaurus, and Diplodocus. Although some sources said it was the Apatosaurus, but most of them said Diplodocus. Okay. Word spread like wildfire about the money one could make by alerting either of the pair of a fossil find. Yeah, I bet. Especially if you just went to the new frontier. Yep. And have no monies. Yep. Because the gold rush wasn't as good as people thought it was going to be. Good thing the dinosaur race is here. (laughs) Go get them dinos. Many went after Edward as the wealthier of the two until people learned about Othniel's inheritance from his very rich uncle. Mm -hmm. Mistakenly believing that he'd cough up more money for any findings, which he didn't. Right. 
Edward sent his own agent out west to investigate more supposed sites, but when negotiations broke down between his agent and the fossil finders, he instead had his agent sniff around off Neil's dig site at Como Bluffs and steal some of the bones. What? Yeah. He just stole bones? Mm Mm-hmm. That is bold. The massive find was written up in the Laramie Daily Sentinel in April 1878. And the winter of that year, William Carlin started working with Edward directly, since Othniel seemed to only pay his workers on an irregular schedule that not everyone was cool with. Oh, you mean like once and or never? Mm-hmm. Interesting. I don't know why people would be okay with that. Yeah. At this point, both Edward and Othniel had moved west to be closer to the action. Could be closer to the bones! I need to touch them and smell them and taste them. The excavations at Como Bluffs took 15 years, and during that time, the workers of the site suffered greatly, whether from their poor living conditions, the inclement weather, because they were forced to work through the winter Oh yeah, in Wyoming. Yeah, would have been awful, and the ground would have been frozen, Mm -hmm. and they don't have the technology that we have today. Mm -hmm. Heated trucks. Mm -hmm. Or just the fact that each were constantly being targeted by spies and thieves. You know, just another Tuesday. Between 1877 and 1892, the hijinks would skyrocket to new levels of pettiness, such as deliberately destroying smaller fossil sites and damaging fossils so the other couldn't get them. That's really, really shitty. They would also backfill excavation pits with rocks and dirt and utilize a number of spies to investigate the other's dig sites. That's awful. They'd also bribe the workers and just plain old steal the bones. I thought this was supposed to be joyful January. I like the idea of them spying on one another over bones. I think that's hilarious. I mean, yeah, but like... We'll get to the joyful part. This Just, just chill. No one's dying. They damaged bones! I know. There is even an account of workers stopping their dig just to pelt stones at the people spying on them. I mean, that would be kind of fun. Yeah, that's joyful. I guess. Othniel used the money he'd inherited from his uncle to hire more people to work for him. But it wasn't long before he and Edward had to contend with the team from Harvard University that had now started to develop their own excavation sites in the West. Uh Uh-oh. New school. It's no wonder that both of them had taken to blowing up or backfilling their sites once they were done to stay one step ahead. Yeah, I guess. I mean, it's not okay, but... It's not okay at all, no. Edward purchased the American Naturalist Journal in 1877 to ensure that his works got published. Sassy. Between 1879 and 1880, he published 76 academic papers, which is a drop in the bucket considering over his life he would publish a whopping 1,400 articles. I bet they were all trash. (laughs) Making him one of the most prolific American authors in scientific history. Uh Uh-huh. I found a bone. (laughs) I found another bone. Paper number three. These bones match. (laughs) Jerk. (laughs) Thanks to his efforts, the number of dinosaur species that had been discovered and classified jumped from a handful to over 100. So not too bad. I mean, yeah, but like... It's like, wow, only a few to, like, a hundred. Wow. (laughs) Congrats, I guess. Yeah. 
During the course of their feud, Edward's works that were rushed for publication were frequently riddled with errors. No. Right. While Othniel often turned to bribery and bullying to get the specimens he wanted. So he's he used Clippy. Yeah. Yeah. Any exchanges they made in scientific journals were filled with vitriol, charges of errors, fraud, and distortions. Fun. I bet the scientific community really loved that. Oh, I'm sure they did. Yeah. Othniel wasn't going to take Edward's success lying down. He was determined to see Edward fail in his endeavors. Mm-hmm. In 1882, calling on his connections and political clout in Washington, he was able to become the chief paleontologist of the newly created U.S. Geological Survey. Interesting. Okay. This power move came with a cache of benefits, access to federal funding, mm-hmm. institutional support, and a crazy amount of political power. Just a little bit, you know, no big deal. Othniel did everything with his newfound power to cut Edward off from the government funding that the pair had been relying on. That's really awful. Especially when it came to paying for the illustrated volumes that reported their discoveries. Damn. This left Edward in a position where he was constantly struggling to find a job. Super fun. Super great. Othniel was slowly losing allies. What? Mainly because he was unwilling to share the spotlight when it came to the discoveries that were made. And since he had a habit of making late payments to the people he employed. Yeah, that would do it. In 1890, Othniel stepped down as the head of the National Academy of Sciences. That same year, Edward was elected president of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Interesting. Okay. Sadly, he was living alone in a small apartment in Philadelphia after leaving his wife and child. Is it sad or is he just a jerk? I'm sure they were better off without him, honestly. Yeah. Desperate to recoup the loss and government funding, Edward took on a silver mining venture in New Mexico that ultimately failed and left him destitute. Yeah. All he had left was his fossil collection, and it was at this time that Othniel made a mistake that would spell his ruin. Ooh, okay. Using his political clout, Othniel attempted to take Edward's fossils under the guise that they had been obtained using federal money, therefore making them the property of the government. Oh, man. Edward wasn't going to take this attack lying down and produced paperwork proving that he had paid for almost the entirety of his collection out of his own pocket. Uh Uh-huh. It was after this snafu that Edward set out to take Othniel down. For years, probably since the start of their friendship, Edward had been keeping records of Othniel's dealings, accusations of scientific impropriety, like the whole spying thing and the paying quarrymen to send the fossils to him. Right. Edward turned his entire collection of information over to a freelance journalist with the New York Herald, who published an expose with the headline, quote, Scientists wage bitter warfare, end quote. Yep, sounds about right. The article started a firestorm in a public battle that lasted for two weeks. Othniel and his contemporaries in the U.S. Geological Survey were accused publicly of incompetence, corruption, and misuse of government funds. Finally. Congress conducted an investigation in 1892 that ended with the survey's funding being slashed not to mention the Department of Paleontology was eliminated, meaning Othniel was officially out of a job. Good. 
As a final slap to the face, the Smithsonian demanded that Othniel give them a large chunk of his personal fossil collection, as some of them had been collected with government funding. That makes sense. Due to the dramatic fashion in which the pair's feud came to light, both of their reputations were forever damaged. I bet, yeah, that makes sense. Edward was unable to find someone who could afford his vast fossil collection that he'd accumulated over the span of 20 years. Eventually, a fellow at the American Museum of Natural History submitted a bid of $32,000 for part of his collection, which would be around $1 million today. Nice. A few years later, Edward became ill in 1897 and died at the age of 56. That's really young. Yeah. But I suppose that was like old-ish, mm-hmm. kind of. Two years later, Othniel died of pneumonia at the age of 67, with only $186 to his name. Wow. Or around $6,200 today. Following his death, over 80 tons of his personal fossil collection was acquired by the Smithsonian. Good. Othniel left the bulk of his collection to the Peabody Museum of Natural History at Yale. Of course he did. Which makes sense. That's his family's museum. Mm Mm-hmm. Even though the pair's reputations were forever tarnished by their petty feud, the sheer amount and quality of fossils they they were able to collect started the foundation of the field of paleontology in America. Edward left behind 13,000 specimens. An Othniel similar collection, according to a personal letter from Charles Darwin, stated that it was, quote, the best support of the theory of evolution, end quote. Okay. Othniel was one of the first to theorize that birds descended from dinosaurs, which I'm sure made Darwin very happy. I'm sure. I'm sure Darwin would be really happy to see the preserved specimen, too, Mm -hmm. that we're going to make a Jurassic Park out of. Yeah. If we want to go simply on numbers, then Othniel won the Bone War by discovering 80 new dinosaur species compared to Edward's 56. Okay. Othniel had more money and men at his disposal and honed in on just reptiles and mammals, while Edward had a wide range of paleontological interests, such as whales and other marine animals. That's kind of cool. Prior to the Bone War, there were only nine named species of dinosaur that had been found in North America, not just in, Amer- not just in the U.S., in the whole of North America. Yeah. And through their combined efforts, they were able to discover not only the first complete skeleton but make dinosaurs a popular topic for the public. Okay, fine. I know. <laughs> Fellow paleontologist Robert Backer shared, quote, The dinosaurs that came from Como Bluff not only filled museums, they filled magazine articles, textbooks, they filled people's minds, end quote. I'm glad they're focusing on the dinosaurs and not the men that, quote unquote, discovered them. Mm-hmm. As you can imagine, their feud also caused quite a bit of harm. Yeah, just a little. Due to the publicity that their animosity was garnering, the reputation of American paleontology as a whole was tarnished amongst their peers in Europe for decades to come. Yeah, I bet. Not only that, but their use of dynamite and sabotage, which could have destroyed and covered up hundreds of fossils that may have led to any number of discoveries. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, Additionally, the fact that they rushed to publish their findings led, as I mentioned earlier, to errors. Yep, that we're still fixing today. For example, it took nearly 100 years for people to discover that Othniel had mistakenly swapped the skulls of the Apatosaurus and the Brontosaurus. Yeah. 
Still, still fixing it. Yep. Still fixing problems. Fun fact. Edward was so determined to show that he was better than Othniel that his last request prior to his death was that his body should be donated to science and his head be dissected to see if his brain was bigger in size than Othniel's. Oh, my God. I don't think I can sigh heavy enough. Yeah. For that. Othniel refused to take part in this challenge. And to this day, Edward's unexamined head sits in storage at the University of Pennsylvania. Good idiot. And that is the Bone Wars. It just made me mad. (laughs) (laughs) Just a couple of two rich petty dudes fighting over bones. I just thought it was funny. I mean, on the one hand, yeah, they were both complete assholes. And they did... To, to everybody and everything. Yeah. And they and almost ruined everything. Yeah. But like on the other hand, because of this rivalry they had, they did do they were a lot of good. Discover more. Yeah. I don't know. It's a toss up. Yeah. It was just fun to read about. I, I read... The reason I picked it is it because I read a snippet about it. And it said that they used dynamite to sabotage each other's dig sites. And I was like, I need to know more about that. So <laughs> that's what swayed Again, me. Great puppet work. Yeah. Dynamite. Be the best Muppet movie ever. Yeah. I'm Dawn. And I'm Cole. And Scottish Murders is a true crime podcast dedicated to people from or living in Scotland. Just like anywhere else in the world, these murders can be truly horrific and shocking. And we want to shine more light upon them. Join us every two weeks on Scottish Murders, where we'll bring you cases both solved and unsolved, giving you an insight into the other side of Bonnie Scotland. Find us wherever you stream your podcasts, as well as on social media. Join us there. Bye. And on that note, this week's podcast plug is the Scottish Murders podcast. Nice. Hosted by Scottish sisters Dawn and Cole, the show is dedicated to solved and unsolved murders carried out in Scotland or the murders of Scottish people. I bet there are a lot of them. Yeah. Released every two weeks or fortnightly, as they say over there. Nice. The pair take turns telling each other stories in their delightful Scottish accents. Awesome. I highly recommend, and we will have a link to their show in the show notes. Yay! And this week's listener question comes from CJ from the Beyond the Rainbow podcast. Hi, CJ. Hey, Siege. And she wants to know, if Hollywood did a movie about you, who would star as you? Oh my God. You know, funnily enough, mom and dad asked me that, this question, this weekend. <laughs> in like a weird roundabout way, they're like, who would play you? And I was like, no one, because it's not going to happen, idiot. (laughs) (laughs) What? I don't know. Probably Amy Poehler. (laughs) Right? They use the... um, She just makes a bunch of fart noises, and that's... They use CGI de-aging software to make her look like you. She wouldn't have to try that hard. No. She is pretty fresh-faced. She is very fresh-faced. I don't know who would play me. Who do you think would play me? You can't insult me. I don't know. I can't really see Amy Poehler as you, though. I kind of want to do one of those Google image search things and, like, put a picture of you in there and see what comes up. Honestly, your voice is similar to, like, Melissa McCarthy in terms of voice and, I don't know. 
Because I can only think of like funny people. And if anybody says Rebel Wilson, I'm going to throw hands. <laughs> Fuck no. I don't know. We, we should just have some like weird indie actors that will blow up after this terrible movie about us comes out. Like, so you started your career about these weird podcasters in Minnesota. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. That was me. Okay. What's something good you'd like to share? I don't know if it's a good thing or not. It's probably bad, but I got into Stardew Valley, the game. Okay. And now it's like it's like a version of it's like a pixelated Sims. I'll see you guys in a year. <laughs> I get super obsessed with it. Luckily, I'm I'm coming down from it from the obsession of the new game, the new shiny game. But it's been nice brain candy. After a very stressful couple of weeks before the holidays. So that's been really nice. What about you? What's one good thing? It says I look like Jennifer Aniston. Nice. Or Chelsea Clinton. <laughs> Honestly, I could see Chelsea Clinton more. Same. All right. My something good is Sophie got a cookbook and she made some cookies the other day. And I don't know what are in them, but they're really good. So I think she put cocaine in them or something because <laughs> I want to keep eating them. What flavor are they? It's like peanut butter. Nice. But it tastes just kind of like brown sugar dissolving in your mouth. Nice. All right, shall we? We shall. All right. You can find us online at yieldcrimepodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at yieldcrimepod, on Instagram at yieldcrimepodcast. And on Facebook at Yield Crime Podcast. We're also on YouTube. You should subscribe. Subscribe. If you'd like to write to us, we have a P.O. Box. Mm-hmm. You can write to us at Yield Crime Podcast, P.O. Box 341, Wyoming, Minnesota, 55092. The address is also saved in the show notes. Send us bones. <laughs> but like, not people ones. Yeah, don't do that. Please. I don't want thanks. that. No, thank you. No, don't do that. You can email us at yieldcrimepodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget there's an E in old or it's not going to come to us. Fair. Send us your questions. We're running low on questions. Um, If you'd like to support the show but can't do so financially, which we get, you can leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, Good Pods, and Spotify. Nice. So this review comes from Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcasts. And it's from a user named Derelict88, which oh, man. solid Zoolander reference. And it says, Ye old listening, five stars. Ye old excels by the energy and rapport of its hosts. They're funny and engaging. What also helps is the variety of cases that are dated and lesser known. As such, the subject matter is often very interesting. Give them a listen and subscribe now. Aw, thanks. Thank you. Derelict. Thank you, Derelict. If you'd like to support us financially, do it. We, we won't tell you no. Yay! <laughs> no, don't do it. You can do so with a one-time donation on our Buy Me a Coffee, or you can join our Patreon for as low as a dollar a month to support mm-hmm. us there, get some early ad-free access to episodes and other fun content. If you'd like to rep our merch, we're not going to be like, no, don't promote us. Absolutely not. Never. What? You can... Purchase our merch over at Redbubble, 
we now have a red bubble store. We are moving away from T Public just because we wanted to offer a little bit more variety of products. So you can find the link in our show notes. We will still have the T Public one up for a little while until we fully migrate everything over to Redbubble. So awesome. And on that note, as always, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Madison. And we'll see you next time with another tale as old as crime. <laughs>